Well, if you would, you take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. I'm very excited about this morning. Uh, this would be the kind of thing where Jesus is pulling the curtain back on heaven, very similar to, I think, like John 17, where you get a view of things that are difficult from our view, not only as dependent human beings, but this side of eternity to understand the workings of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son, particularly here. And then uh, John's going to expand even more further on of the role of the Spirit and then spiritual role in the believers' lives. But it really is uh, the deep end of the pool, and it really is what you could say, uh, as Hebrew says, kind of the difference between uh, milk and meat, and uh, I'm excited for it, and it's the kind of sermon or the kind of text, I could say, that you will maybe take one or two things from that are profound, but trust me, you could keep studying and you will find more and more and more and more implications really for us and our understanding of who uh, God is. So let's go ahead and look together there. So John chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Um, I know I had a, I kind of changed a little bit of how I want to look. You've got kind of a larger section with different transitions. Um, I think 17 is a good context point to pick up. I know we kind of worked through 18 just to give the sense of why are they rejecting Christ? Why are, what are the issues they're having? And it's not simply that he healed a man, but of course he healed a man on the Sabbath, and that's not even the real issue. The real issue is they understand when Jesus says, my relationship to the Sabbath is different than yours. My father's been working, and so I'm still working, and they know what he means by that is making himself equal with God, and that is why they're going to kill him. That is this major rejection point, this big section, chapter 5 through 7. Of course, that doesn't end, obviously, until you get really their ultimate going to culminate in the rejection and the crucifixion of Christ. But there are reasons. Help us understand. How could you go about setting a plan in motion to crucify the Son of God? Well, this is, this is how it happened, and it is interestingly enough, right? It's the religious leaders of the day. So let's read together 17. If I had to change the title, last week we looked at the Father, the Son, and the Sabbath. I would probably title this one the Father, the Son, and you, because I think there's two things about you in here. Um, both the words of eternal life in 24 and, of course, the resurrection, the judgment that Christ has. And then next week we pick up in 31, you could say the Father, the Son, and the Scriptures, because that's going to come big into play. And it's all going to revolve around that final issue. I just want you to keep all this context in mind. They don't believe. They don't believe in Moses. That's huge in John, because he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's context there, and of course, just keep chapter 1 running in the background like a computer program, because all about the deity of Christ in chapter 1 has massive impacts of what Jesus is going to refer to here in chapter 5. All right, so hopefully that sets us up a little bit to start back in 17. The, the man who has uh, an invalid over all those years was told, pick up your mat, go and walk. Jesus finds him personally again and instructs him even further because more important than physical healing is spiritual healing. In fact, he even says, you don't want something worse, verse 14, to happen to you. And guess what? We're going to get into the worse, which is to come before the judge, Christ himself, and be cast into an eternal hell. That's worse than being sick in this life. So in verse 17, what's the reason he gives that he's working till now? On, he can work on the Sabbath. He says, well, he answers them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also 
was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. And therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing for himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all the judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth. And those who did the de good deeds to a resurrection of life. And those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing for myself. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will. But the will of him who sent me. Father, as we come before this amazing passage. Where our Lord expresses his absolute dependence on you and your will. Your desire to see him honored above all, even in your giving him this judgment over all people. Lord, even as we just sang, and even as we've studied in the past year, the glorious return of your son and seeing that although even this refers to a coming day, here in this text, the judge is present on earth. And we, of course, look to a day where he will return and he will come to judge. But let us take inventory this morning of these things. Help us to understand, even as John is communicating by the power of your spirit, this teaching of Christ and the impact not only for the future when all will be judged, but even now because it matters what we do with Christ today will matter for eternity. So let us see the glory of Christ this morning as revealed here in John chapter 5. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Hebrews 6, verse 13. Don't go there because I'm going to take you somewhere else in a moment. It says, for when God made the promise to Abraham. So back to Abrahamic promise, the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. When he made that promise, since he could swear of no one greater, he swore that as God swore by himself. That's the first of many things in this passage uh, in the scriptures where you go, what does that mean? To swear by himself, to swear by his nature. And of course, in that context, saying, I did it because there was no one greater. And that is to say, you can be absolutely sure of this thing. Above anything else in this world and life, no matter how trustworthy, the most trustworthy person you know is, he is not God. And so God swore to Abraham by himself. 
If you go back to Genesis 15, you're going to see in the Abrahamic promise there, and you guess you don't have to go there, we'll just summarize, but there in the covenant he makes with Abraham, it is God who walks through the middle of the sacrifice. It's very interesting to note in Genesis 15, when he makes that covenant with Abraham, if you can remember, what does Abraham have to do with it? God actually puts Abraham to sleep. He has zero to do with that covenant. God makes it, as it were, with himself. And then Genesis 22, which this phrase from Hebrews comes from, it is when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And he's obedient. Of course, God spares Isaac. But because of that, he makes again, reaffirms that covenant with Abraham and says, I swear by myself because of what you have done there, Abraham. But it's this concept I want to focus on and want to see here because you have this uh, intra-Trinitarian relationship. The God, the Father, the Son. And the confidence we have, you and I as believers, comes from not a love that God has for us, but the love that God has for his Son. It's very easy in our culture and our world to look at kind of the me-centeredness and to say, even within the church, that God loves me. And the emphasis is God loves you. And we've seen God loves the world. He has this love for all people, not just Israel. Yes. But I don't know about you. Do you want God's love based on you and your worth? I think if you're honest, if you look inside and think of my own life and me, I go, I, I don't know if that's, that's not a good idea. I don't want it based on my obedience. I don't want it based on my value. John chapter 1, a huge part of who Jesus is, is he's different than us. Why? Because he's independent. He was in the beginning. Eternity passed. He was there. He's different. He's fully man, but he's different because he's fully God, fully independent. God's not like us. And there's almost a sense in which it's difficult for us to talk of God's love for himself. But that's really what we see here. God's love for himself. God's love, the Father, for the Son. And it's essential for us to understand this and to have confidence that God's love for us is not rooted in you and me, but it's rooted in his love for himself. I know to our ears that sounds a little narcissistic. Well, how can God love himself? Isn't it bad for us to love ourselves? Well, again, we're not like God. He's perfect. He's holy. In fact, he can only love what is perfect and holy, which means he can only most perfectly love himself. He can't love sinners in that same way. But that's going to be the beauty of the gospel, our union with Christ, that he loves the Son in the same way then if we're united to the Son, that he loves us in that same way. It's unbelievable, as we'll see. Here we're going to see this big concept of Jesus, who, yes, is fully God, also has full authority to execute judgment. And it's all rooted here, starting in 17, in that he is equal with God, and that this is communicated in which way that the Son can do nothing apart from the Father. In the context of this story, whether Jesus breaks the Sabbath or not, his point is God works continuously, which of course you could almost see the wheels turning in the minds of the Jewish leaders and they would go, absolutely, of course God has worked from the beginning. But the implication was, my father's always working to this day. 
Well, she says, my father, which they understand what that means. He's drawing equality. I am too working. His self-defense is, you are mere mortals. Different rules apply to you than apply to me. Now, this isn't quite the same exposition as in other parts of different gospels where he talks about being Lord of the Sabbath, but the same principle applies. He's not a subject to the Sabbath in that same way without even discussing the fact that, was it him breaking the Sabbath? No, right? It was actually the man, healed, they accused, of picking up his mat. And of course, was that a violation of the Sabbath? I don't think so, according to what is given in the Old Testament. But that all aside, his argument is making that the rules of men don't apply to me in the same way because I'm not just a man. I am fully God. God is continuously working since creation. And so have I. And his opponents, they immediately understand what he's saying. My father's working until now, verse 17. I myself am working, and they understand it, and that's the reason. There's lots of these fours in our text this morning. This is why, why, why. And so it lets us know, as far as the, this movement of the life of Christ, reasons, why are they rejecting? Why are they going to persecute? Well, it's for this reason. And here, he says, the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him, because he's not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that sets up the whole discourse here, Jesus teaching us of who he is and the authority given to him and that he is one with the father and he is going to be faithful, obedient to the father's will in every capacity in his submission. So this is Philippians 2. He's not going to do his own thing here. He has come in his incarnation and is submitting to the Father's will. And beyond that, we're going to see here that equality is not to say it's independence, because we're going to see he's not independent from God, but just as chapter 1 explains, he is, there is a unity in the Trinity. He is fully God, but there is still this distinction that he is still the Son. And so the truth here communicated is Jesus is going to explain is that he can do nothing on his own or by himself or maybe better translated from himself. And his answer is just that here in verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered him and was saying to them, you say, context would be wonderful. We don't have it all, but this is what the Spirit wants us to understand, this truth that truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing from himself and let is, is something he sees the Father doing. For the Father does these things, the Son also does in the same manner. Though he is uniquely the Son, we saw that in chapter 1 of God, that isn't to say he is born, it's to say that he is unique, only begotten Son, that phrase from the early parts of chapter 1, he can rightfully call truly God. He takes throughout the gospel these divine titles, he has divine rights, but yet here in his submission, in this incarnation, Philippians 2, he is submitting to the Father's will, even, as Philippians 2 says, to the death on a cross. He does only what pleases the Father. One commentator kind of summarized it this way of this relationship, that it's the Father who initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants. And it's the Son and his incarnation who responds and obeys and performs his father's will and receives authority. Why? We get another four. This is why. For the father loves the son 
and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. There's two major realities. The Son, number one, his obedience involves revealing the Father. You go back to chapter 1, verse 18. That amazing sentence. No one, chapter 1, verse 18, has seen God at any time. How can we have a relationship with God if no one has seen God? Well, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he, that is, in the context of Jesus, has explained him or made him known. How do we know the Father? We know the Father through the Son. Reality, verse 20, and that God's love for us, number two, is not rooted in who we are, but who the Son is. Another amazing reality, a way of wording that is, God's love for you is not dependent on you, but on his love for his son, which is absolute. For the father loves the son, shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. So again, there is a you involved in that context. Them, but of course even to us, we're to marvel at what God is doing. So again, it's not to say that there is reality which God is completely independent, completely other. And yet he does love the world, and yet he does do this so that others might see, and even furthermore, show honor, as we'll see, to the Son. The examples, if you were following just the logic of the text here, are going to be, in what way? What greater works than these is he going to show so that you will marvel? And it's really, you could say, it's kind of one big thing that Jesus has given all authority to execute final judgment— that's kind of the big idea. If you broke it into kind of two ideas, it's going to be this authority to judge and authority to raise, particularly in the next two, which of course are related to one another. God the Father has given the Son all authority to execute final judgment. Flip over to John 15, and I think this analogy will help us think of this and connect it Because you're seeing in the Father and the Son this relationship. The Son does not do things outside of what the Father wills, right? Well, the same thing is going to be true as we relate to the Son through the gospel. And probably the, the best analogy, picture in the New Testament is probably from the Gospel of John here in chapter 15, which is the vine and the branches, because there's going to be a similar movement here throughout the gospel that that relationship of the Father and the Son that we would have to the Son through the Spirit. So looking at John 15, he says, I am the true vine. And I think this is going to be really important when we get to the idea of fruit and good deeds, which is going to come up at the end of this. In what way does life flow in us and through us? We're going to see it's going to be through being attached to the vine. Who's the vine? Verse 1, chapter 15. I, Jesus, is the true vine. My Father is the vine grower. Every branch in me does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. 
You already are clean because the word which I have spoken to you abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Does that sound familiar? Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And Christ is saying, think of Philippians 2, saying, that's the way the perfect man lived apart from the Father. He could do nothing. And for us, as we follow Christ, we're going to do nothing apart from him. You better be attached to the vine where we've been promised, chapter 1, right? If you're in him, you're a child of God, then the grace flows through him to you to live out your life. And of course, you're going to bear much fruit if that is true. So go back to John chapter 5. Everything about the way God views us is going to be dependent on how we view Christ. Are we united with him in his life, death, and resurrection? We saw in baptisms a couple weeks ago. We'll see it again next week. That union in both his death and his resurrection, united in his life, death, and resurrection, empowered by the Spirit to do good works. And so in this way, thinking of these following sections, which are going to demonstrate, and it's going to be the illustration of the Father's love for the Son— We are going to learn some things about you and me. That'll let us marvel so that the end of verse 20, you will marvel. What is going to cause us to marvel? Number one, very similar to Nicodemus, what's going to cause us to marvel is there are some things that we cannot do. Namely, firstly, that you cannot on your own, have eternal life. You cannot have eternal life. We're going to see, this is the first of two things you're going to see that you cannot do apart from the Son. You cannot have eternal life. Look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. It's just simply saying that they are able, that the same power to give life, which we've already even seen in the healing power of Christ demonstrated. For not even the Son judges anyone, but he has given all the judgment to the Son, which that's going to be purposeful. Because now you're getting it, well, why is there even a distinction here? Well, the explanation is why there's a distinction. Why doesn't the Father do all the judging? Well, he gives the judging to the Son for a purpose. So that all, which that's you and me, that's everyone, everyone will bow the knee. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Everyone, verse 23, will honor. He gives the judgment to the Son. Why? So that, for this reason, that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Why? Because they're equal. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If they are listening... And this is an issue of how well are the Jewish leaders listening? How well are even maybe the disciples listening in? This is massive. Because they think they're protecting Moses' law. They think they are honoring Yahweh. And Jesus is saying, you cannot honor Yahweh. You cannot honor the Lord. You cannot honor God unless you honor the Son. Everything's going to go through the Son purposefully so that everyone will honor him. 
And then verse 24, where do we get life? Where do you get the eternal life? If you can't have it apart from the Son, how can I have it with the Son? It's belief. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, which I think is going to tie into the scriptures next week and the way that they reject Moses, they're rejecting him, believes him who sent me. How do we know what he said? You look to his word. And if you believe him who sent me, if you hear the words of Christ and you believe the words, particularly of scripture, one who has sent me is revealed, and you have eternal life. And you do not come into judgment. That is, you have passed out of death into life. So as much as this is a huge concept of God's love for himself, God's love for the Son, a massive impact, a uh, book that had a massive impact on me was a book titled God's Passion for His Glory, which is, there's a little commentary by John Piper in it about the life of Jonathan Edwards, but then it kind of looks and just gives a book or kind of an essay by Edwards, the end for which God created the world. You start to read some of the Puritans and some people like that, or Jonathan Edwards, you get these bigger concepts. But I personally had never been exposed to that within kind of church at that point. Probably, I think I was 19 or 20 when I got that book for the first time. The end, like these big ideas, why was the world created? God's passion for his own glory. God's passion for the glory of his son. And you see these things, but it's, not completely as if we have nothing to do with it. It's not because of us, but even this. The glory he receives is going to come from those who believe. And even more so, that book even talking about, well, how could someone get glory from judgment or from hell? Well, there is even reasons in that because you have God's attributes being glorified or magnified even in his judgment. How do you know he's perfectly just? Well, he judges perfectly. And it's demonstrated even in someone who rejects Christ. But here again, he says, the judgment, eternal judgment is given to the son. That is the ability to say, live or die. But then he also comes back around and says, truly, truly, verily, verily, right? I, I, I want you to know how to live. He who hears my word, believes in him, has eternal life, does not come into judgment, is passed out of death into life. So even as he's teaching these things, he's not far from those who are listening then and for us who are reading now, I want you to know how you can have eternal life. And the first thing you need to know is that you can't have it apart from him. That there's under no other name, heaven and earth, that you will have life apart from him. Jesus is going to offer, Jesus is going to offer life to those who believe in him, new birth, living water, and it doesn't discount even, I think, we're going to see judgment at the end, resurrection. But even, I think he's talking about, of course, life even through him now. We're being attached. You believe in him. You are attached to the vine. He's giving life. And that way, do you borrow Paul's language? It's a down payment. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now he who established us with you in Christ, anointed us in God, who has also sealed us, kind of financial language, and gave the pledge, the down payment of the Spirit in our hearts. 
And this is someone who guarantees every single loan. It's not a question of if it's going to happen. It's guaranteed. It's just physically, or we haven't experienced it yet, but we can be guaranteed by the sealing of the Spirit. Ephesians 1 says something similar. In him, you also, after listening to the word, which goes back to believe in him, right? He who hears my word in him, Paul says, you also, talking to the church of Ephesus, listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Like I said, you have a moment here where the main context is the father and the son, but John, when you get to the end, you're going to see the spirit included. What's the spiritual? He's going to seal promise, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, he is going to get glory from it, but that glory is going to come if you believe in him. You're going to give glory to God through being saved, through salvation. He's going to get glory either way, though, through a judgment or through salvation, because he's God and the Son will be honored one way or the other. It's just an amazing, amazing truth. This goes back to the equality. What? Father has the ability to give life. So does the Son. He is seen equal to God, even in this little section, whether it's in verse 19, in his work, or the knowledge, 20, in his power and judgment, equal with God, even in honor, because God him self-sees that he will be honored. So just as the son heals the invalid by the pool, by his word, so it's also by his word that he gives eternal life and gives cleansing. This is the son. He's given judgment, and the only way that he—judgment here is the ability to judge saved, unsaved— How do we get life? By believing and trusting in him again. So how do you get life? By trusting and believing in him and his gospel truth. So you can't have eternal life without him. That's the reality because he's the only one who can save. He's the only one with the authority to save. But also, you're not going to be able to do anything good. Now this is a relative term. You might look at good and bad and it's relative. So um, even you might be, uh, that's a good guy. That's a a nice lady. And this is in contrast to a holy and a perfect God. And even something that is good, an action, can be done with a wrong motivation. And if it's not for the glory of God, it is wrong. So there's not even good deeds. Isaiah says our good deeds are, apart from Christ, are like filthy rags. And so you can't have eternal life apart from the Son, but you also cannot have good deeds apart from the Son. Look at verse 25. And again, the big context here is resurrection, but you're going to be resurrected, and the you aspect of this is, how'd you live? Good deeds or evil deeds? Either way, you're getting resurrected. We don't think about this very often. You think, well, believers get resurrected bodies. I know we've been a lot of this in Revelation uh, in our past study, which if those who weren't here, you can go and listen to. But here, both the believer and the unbeliever get raised. They're both getting judged. 
And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour, since Jesus is talking to them, is coming and now is. And I take this phrase in the same way in Matthew, you say, uh, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or in Mark, it says the kingdom of God is near. How is the judgment far and near? Because this is a judgment, I understand, is a judgment that's coming at the end and looking probably the great white throw judgment ultimately without giving all the details here. If you get more if you want to talk multiple resurrections. I don't think this says there's only one. He's simply just like the Christ is, is gonna, the Messiah is coming and we don't necessarily see, oh, he's coming in his first coming and he's coming in his second. In the same way, there's, there's going to be multiple resurrections as we understand them, say looking at Revelation 20. But it is one that even the unbelievers and believers both are going to give an account for how they live. That's the truth. That's the reality. Believers at, you could say, the church at the Bema Seat judgment, but even everyone is going to be raised and give an account at the great white throne, the unbelievers there. But just truly, truly, I say to you, an hour's coming and now is, and again, how I understand this is, the judge is here and that is the way in which it is near, just as the kingdom is near because the king is there. The judge is there, now here, the judge, he's right there in front of you. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. As I said, this at the first glance seems like a really good thing. You hear the voice of the Son of God and you live. This is good, right? The problem is, are you being raised to eternal life with the Son or to judgment and apart from? from him in everlasting judgment. We'll see, verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. How is Jesus equal to God? He is independent. That's chapter one, right? He has life in himself in a way that you and I do not have. We only have life because it's granted to us. We are dependent. He is independent, and so guess what? He can have authority here to give or take life because he is God in that way. The same way the Father has life, so the Son has life in himself as well. And also, verse 27, he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Hopefully you have a leg up on that phrase because we saw it so often with Daniel and with Revelation but that phrase isn't just simply a lesser phrase than the Son of God. It's saying he is the Son of Man who the Ancient of Days is going to give a kingdom. That is not a lesser phrase. It's saying he is the Son of Man who will come in Daniel chapter 7, who's going to receive the kingdom and authority here to execute judgment. They must be marveling because he's or at least knows their, their thoughts. You, might, you must be marveling at this. And therefore he responds in 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Probably culturally sitting in the background here are the Sadducees who deny and reject a resurrection. Jesus firmly believes in a resurrection and he plays the role in it. Don't marvel. The tombs are going to hear his voice and they're going to respond they're going to come forth like, say, Lazarus, because he has the power over life and death. They're going to come forth, verse 29, and those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. This kind of feels a little bit like, okay, are we back to 
works-based salvation. And if you do good things, you get into heaven. If you do bad things, then you get put in hell apart from God. Well, no, that violates everything John has been teaching so far. So we have to kind of understand in what way are we, is he saying this? And I think that's where John 15 is, is helpful because just as we saw in the new birth, is this something you do that you get credit for? No, it's a work of God. Well, it's impossible to be born again, which I don't think Jesus argues with him. You're right. It is impossible apart from God. It's impossible, but with God, anything is possible. But I think this is referring to the evidences. Have you been given a new nature? Are you a new creation? And what's the best evidence of that? The way that you live. Think of that. John 15 again. Vine, branches. How do you bear fruit? When you are attached to him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the, there it is. Say, you can't bear fruit. You can't do good deeds apart from him. And so the, the phrase is, you are in him. If you have believed him and given eternal life, then you will bear good deeds. And in this context, then you go to the resurrection of life. And those committed evil deeds. And don't think here that this is evil deeds like mass murder or genocide. He's just simply saying, if you don't honor the son... That everything you do is for selfish gain and is a rejection of him. And then you will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. That is, you're going to stand on your own. You're going to give an account for your sin. It, back to the question. The question of, is God going to save you, is going to be up to your life. And it's going to come drastically, infinitely short. Whereas the one who does the good deeds will be a demonstration of their relationship with the Son. Resurrection is going to point to everyone's evidence that is of their salvation. New birth is a work of God. We're going to see that good deeds are simply the evidence of what John 15 is talking about. He's not looking... Here, which I think is interesting, if you go back to John 5, if you're there, with not looking even at the works and good deeds of Christ, which I think we are credited, but just saying, look, when the resurrection happens, it's going to be a question of what do you have to say? Kind of the classic evangelism question, if you were to die today and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you in? What would you say? And again, I was nice to my neighbor. I was a good person. I was good to my kids. Will not fly because you have an infinite problem of an offense for a perfect and a holy God. But the reality is going to be, it's going to look to say, are you a good tree or a bad tree? Which, of course, is going to go back to new nature. Have you been born again? Because if you have been, and you are made into a new tree, a good tree, attached to the vine, you're going to bear good fruit. But it's God who transforms into that good tree. The role of works are not going to be anyway salvific. Otherwise, we're going to get credit, which not to go to Galatians and Ephesians, preach a different sermon, but it is to say it's not based on works, but based on the grace of God. And ultimately, John 15, our ability to do good works is going to be based on the union with Christ to the vine. Because you're going to do things, not even, even the very same thing, serving one another, you're not going to do for any other reason but to glorify the Lord. And then that would be a good deed because you want to honor 
God. Romans 6 talks about this union. The union being attached to him means we get him. Means when at that judgment God is looking towards us, there in that sense, he doesn't see the sinful, fallen, wicked man, but he sees his son who we've been united to. Paul says, or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Again, that sounds like a bad thing, but it is a wonderful thing. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might, too, might walk in newness of life. And even that, right? Why are you baptized? Why are you saved? So that you'd be changed. You would walk in a newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And as we saw, you see the guarantee is the pledge of the Spirit. Look down at verse 30. It all goes back to, though, not you, but the Son and his submission to the Father, which is going to culminate in submission, even humility, even to death on a cross. I can do nothing, Jesus says, from myself. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is far more than a moral example. He's far more than, um, hey, what would Jesus do kind of thing. He's a savior. He's God. He's incarnate. He's the returning king who will make all things right. But yet, at the same time, you look and say he is the perfect man. Which, of course, is the reason he gets to judge, because he's perfect. And why is he going to judge men? Because he's fully God, and he's fully man. But even here, you see him as a perfect example. John 15, are we trying to live apart from the vine, apart from Christ? Because you look at Christ, he understood in his incarnation, he is doing nothing apart from the Father. In the same way, you and I are meant to do nothing apart from the Son, by the power of the Spirit. And this guarantees here, everything that is said, how does it guarantee it? Well, because Jesus is perfect. He's perfectly faithful to the Father in every way. And you can count all of that as true, that he's the judge, that he will raise the dead. Why? Because he can do nothing from himself. He and the Father are one Guarantees all that he says will happen, even the judgment of the last day. Why? Because he's in absolute agreement with the Father. What does it look like for us? Well, I think the pursuit of bearing good fruit. Why? Not because we want to show people how righteous we are, but we want to honor the Son. Think of fruit. You can't help but think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and even looking at that in which ways as you see how faithful Christ is and you honor him for who he is, but yet also look and say, am I growing in those areas as well, demonstrating those fruits of the spirits? You're not gonna be able to do loving others, having peace and patience that passes all understanding if you are not connected to the vine. And even then, understanding if you're not under the control of 
the Spirit, which I think is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means to be under control of the Spirit, renewing your mind daily. And you think about how could we be like Christ, Philippians 2, and view others as more important than ourselves? How can you put someone's need above what you desire over and over and over again unless you are attached to the life-giving vine who does the very thing? He does nothing for himself. And he calls us to do the same, to view others as more important than ourselves and bear that fruit and bear that discipleship to say, we demonstrate what it is to look like a follower of Christ as demonstrated here. Well, the negative here is phrased as we phrased it. Things you can't do. <laughs> you can't have eternal life on your own. You can't even do good things. Positive is though, if you are united to Christ through faith, if you believe the testimony about him in the scriptures, even as it's built into the argument next week, that he gives us eternal life and the Holy Spirit empowers us then to live that out in good deeds. And ultimately, this all should be rooted and give us an unshakable confidence because as this passage so clearly states, it's not rooted in our obedience or even God's love for us, but it's rooted in God's love for his son and the son's equality with the father. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that even as we see such massive theological truth, things that we can't fully grasp like the Trinitarian love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But yet we understand enough to know as we saw in Hebrews that when you made a promise to Abraham and you could swear by nothing greater than to swear by yourself and even here we have confidence that you are pleased with your Son that he is truly the son of God, that he is truly fully God because, why? Because you have affirmed this and giving him power over judgment, life, death. And it will be affirmed again for all the world to see when Christ returns and it is given back as we saw Revelation chapter four the deed of the very universe given to him who is the rightful king, the rightful ruler. Let us remember even now that those truths are not absent of expectations that should impact the way we live, the way we treat one another, the way we live dependent on you for every moment and everything if we are to do things that are truly good, it must be done by the power of your spirit for the glory and the honor of your son. Help us live our lives in that way at all times in view of how we are honoring Christ in all that we do. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.